Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. Good morning, everyone. I uh, was just sitting back there, and I got to say, too, like I, I love to worship with you guys on Sunday morning. It's, uh, it's the best thing you could possibly do on a Sunday, right, to come here and to worship with all you guys. And, and God's here. He's here to heal everybody. He's here to do things in our midst, to, to satisfy us, to fill us, to heal us, to, to quench our, hung, our thirst, you know, to fill our hunger. So that, that's fantastic. And that, that song that says, he's coming after me, he's chasing after me, that's, that's awesome. You know, as a... Uh, talking with some friends the other day about RSVP, party crashing with Jesus. And uh, they're like, well, how, why? Like, that, how does that even make sense? Like, RSVP, party, you don't crash a party that you've been given an invite to. You know, so I was thinking about it. I was like, you know what? Jesus invites us to his party. And if we're too busy, we're at our own party. He chases us down. He comes after us. He comes to our party. He brings his party to us and teaches us how to do it in a better way. So it's just good. It's good. He's good. So yeah, we're going to carry on today with uh, RSVP, Party Crashing with Jesus. I called this today Party Crashing 101, so we'll see how and why. But before we do, we're going to look back again at something that uh, Pastor Carl mentioned last week, talking about uh, party crashing and understanding that God's actually a really good time, and he really wants us to know that he, he's fun, and he wants to party with us. So last week, Pastor showed us Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. And it says this, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. So you know the story. If you don't, the Israelites are in bondage to the Egyptians. They've been forced to be slaves for 400 years. God gets a hold of Moses, says, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh and uh, tell him to let my people go. And the reason why is he wants to feast with them in the wilderness. The first thing he wants to do when he sets them free is get them out into the wilderness so they can have a party. So that word feast, uh, uh, to hold a festival, to reel, to be giddy, to celebrate, to dance, to stagger. And hopefully I didn't spit when I said that because that's gross. So yeah, so why, why is this amazing? This, when you understand the context of this, that, that kind of little throwaway verse, Exodus 5 verse 1, he wants to have a feast with me in the, in the wilderness. Well, when you think about it, God called Abraham and he said, you know what? I'm going to make you a father of nations. I mean, all the world's going to be blessed by you and you're going to have a kid in a very supernatural, miraculous way. And then he says, oh, but, by the way, so Genesis 15, 13, he says, then he said to Abraham, know certainly that these descendants through whom you're going to be a blessing to the whole world, they're going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They're going to serve the people of that land and they will afflict them for 400 years. So what a, what a fantastic promise for the, his future generations, right? That's not cool. So again, when, uh, when God's speaking to Moses at the burning bush, he wants to set the Israelites free. Moses is out for his morning walk, and he sees a bush burning, and that's okay. There's lots of bushes burning all the time, but, but he kind of notices this one's not being consumed. So he takes a moment, he looks, and there's a voice that speaks out of the bush, and it says this, he says, I've seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
So you've got the Israelites. They've been in bondage 400 years. God himself says he knows they've been afflicted. He knows their sorrows. He sees their oppression. He knows that they've been living in an environment of people, like just driving them. So we've got that. We've got this scenario. We've got these people under this kind of conditions. And then we've got Moses. And I don't think, I think in those 400 years, I think the Israelites, they'd also kind of lost the knowledge of God a little bit. I don't think, how do you live 400 years cut off from your history, your ancestry? How do you live in that environment and and retain the worship of your God? You're completely inundated with an Egyptian culture. And I think you see this with Moses. Moses says to God, you know what, God, that's great. That's fantastic. I'm going to go tell them that you're going to set them free. But by the way, who, who are you? Who, who do I tell them is going to set, set them free? Like, what's your name? And God's really helpful. And he says something like, Whoo. when he says, I am that I am, that's literally what it would have sounded like. It was like, Whoo. so Moses is like, that's, that's great. That's excellent. And God helps him out a little bit. And he says, well, you know what? He's like, tell them this. Tell them that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent, sent me to you. And again, that's a, that, you see that constantly in the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for me, that tells me that the Israelites, they, they didn't know God in the present tense. They knew about their ancestors. They knew about their relationship to God, but they didn't have one in the now. So Moses goes, he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, Pharaoh, let the people of God go. Pharaoh's like, no, why would I do that? And, uh, and then he gets really mad. So he makes the, the, the labor even more intensive for the Israelites. And uh, they're like, great, this is awesome. Thanks, God. Moses is like, what the heck? Everything just got a million times worse. This is no good at all. So Moses goes, he complains to God. God convinces him, says, no, no, this is my plan. You're my guy. It's all good. We're going to get him out. So Moses goes back. He talks to the Israelites. And it says this, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. So they experienced bondage, their, their anguish, their sorrow. Not to mention 400 years of slavery had cut them off from the true knowledge of God, the true worship of God. They had no idea who he was like. They'd, they'd lived in bondage. They're in a really bad, dark place, all of them. And they couldn't see past these things. So it's into this context that God gets a hold of these people and he says, you guys who've been experiencing affliction, sorrow, bondage of all type, you guys who don't have a knowledge of God, it's to these people that God says, the first thing you need to know about me, I'm the guy that sets you free and I bring you into a good time. I'm fun. As a matter of first importance, I'm fun, which is great. So they go into the, the, the wilderness and they do actually party. It's kind of understated in the Bible, but, but think about this. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and 20, it says this. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then Miriam and the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out uh, with her with timbrels and with dances. Can you imagine hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, in the desert dancing and singing? Like, it's just kind of a throwaway in the Bible, but that's a party. I don't know about what, what you think that might look like, but that's a big deal. So we've got in the Old Testament, we've got this, we've got this pattern that we can see carried over into the New Testament. You, you come to Jesus, you get free. And I think, still think today, the first thing he wants you to know about him is he's fun. Whatever your past is, whatever your bondage is, whatever's going on, he's a good God and he's a good time. And you know you're free when you can enjoy life. When you can go through some stuff, and that's not to deny, there's stuff. We do stuff. Stuff happens in life. 
but you can praise God. You can rejoice in who he is. You can come here. You can celebrate him. You can feel the goodness of God in your heart and know at the end of the day, it's all good. So we've got this pattern. We've got a pattern of uh, come to the Lord and party. And I think that's kind of a, an innate kind of human thing. We're, we're made in the image of God. We all want to have a good time too. And, uh, you know, I think this is really important, but I can't tell you how many times that I've had conversations with people and they've been like, I don't want to come to Jesus. I'm definitely not coming to church on Sunday morning. And I just don't want to do that whole religious thing because it's, it's boring. It's not fun. Who wants to do that? I mean, what are you people doing on a Sunday morning? What didn't you do on Saturday night so that you could do what you're doing on Sunday? Right? So these people, they're... They're wanting to have fun, but I mean, are they, are they really having fun? Some of them are, sure they are, but it's more like, for me, like they're, they're looking for fun. They're, they're go, we're going from one experience to the next, one event to the next, one, one high to the next. It's kind of a coping thing, but, but that innate drive for fun, for a good time, is totally of God, and I think we see that in that story. So made in that image, and, and for me, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he, he doesn't condemn people for going to parties. He doesn't condemn people for wanting to have a good time. And he doesn't condemn people for, for people trying to find and invent ways to do it. He kind of comes to us and he, he validates that aspect of our human nature, of, of who we are as people, just by his presence. So you see in the Gospels, you see in the Bible, God's like, you know, we're going to do all these feasting. There's so much more feasting in the Bible than there is fasting, but somehow we twisted that too. Kind of interesting. But Jesus validates this pursuit of a good time. But like Pastor said last week, he comes to us and, and he helps us to do it better. You know, he helps us to do it with that like deep eternal satisfaction rather than, you know, that fleeting high that comes and goes. So Jesus, I think he's, he's coming to people. He's coming to parties. He's validating us. He's validating, you know, that basic thing inside of us. And he's teaching us how to do it in a way that really satisfies. And he gives us that water that really, really quenches thirst. So today we're going to look at, a, at an example of a party that Jesus actually crashed. An example of Jesus coming to a party, coming down, validating that, that celebration, that thing that we've got inside of us that wants a good time. And we're going to see him taking people where they are and trying to lift them up into a better time. So we're going to look today at John chapter 7, where Jesus, he crashed the, the festival of tabernacles. So uh, I, to, to help us with this, I, I looked up online, there's, there's a website called WikiHow, I've never seen it before, but came across it, it was fantastic. Apparently you can type in what you want to know how to do, and it's just, here you go. So it's great. So believe it or not, there are instructions for crashing a party, which is amazing. Apparently people do this, and it's actually a really neat, tidy website, it's really laid out, really detailed, it's like, oh my goodness, who does this? I need to find you. But, so... I've kind of taken the main points here. So wiki how to do anything, I think is what it's called. But So number one, take the next necessary precautions. Number two, you've got to figure out how you're getting into the party. Number three, once you get there, you've got to blend in. You don't want to get kicked out. And then they added this fourth one, which I think was rather nice, returning the favor. You know, you get caught, throw your own party and invite all these nice people that you met. So that's kind of cool. So like I said... Kind of party crashing 101, wiki house style. And we're going to see if Jesus actually followed these instructions. Did he check the website? And it's kind of cool. <laughs> I think he did. It's kind of cool. So uh, number one, take the necessary precautions. So under this, it says do some research. 
figure out what type of party you're trying to crash. So the websites, I couldn't figure out how to do it on the slides or I would have done it, it would have been really funny, but it says uh, things like dress right, which I never do. Uh, <laughs> I need some help, Josh. So it says things like, uh, make sure you bring what you need to bring, bring the right stuff. Uh, so yeah, that's cool. But, but today, Feast of Tabernacles. Find out what kind of party you're going to. This is the party that Jesus has gone to, and it's actually quite a, a big, big, big deal. So we can see about it in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 44. You can see the beginnings of where this party actually happened. So I'll just read it for a second. Not all of it, because Leviticus is hard for me anyways. It's weird. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And you shall take for yourselves on, on uh, the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the, bow, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and you shall dwell in booths for seven days." All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the Lord, that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So you've got a seven-day party, and they're all making them, themselves little tents, teepee-type things that they're living in, and, and they still do this to this day. It's it's really interesting. So we've got that component in Deuteronomy. It kind of something's added to the feast. It's uh kind of got a, a harvest feel to it. So Deuteronomy 16, it says this, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Big party, not just you're invited, invite everybody, your whole family. We've got booths, we've got... Uh, We've got a, a festival, a Thanksgiving kind of feel to it for seven days. So this is its beginnings. And then as this festival grows over the years and the centuries, there's different elements that are added to it. So, uh, you know, in its beginnings, it, it's, it's, it's celebrate the wilderness wanderings. And then uh, King Solomon, he dedicated the temple and the glory of God fell on um, the, the last day of this feast. The same glory that Ezekiel 10, we were told, this glory departed the temple. And as the Jews, as they began to celebrate this feast and add certain elements to it, uh, they came to, be, to, to add these little ceremonies that con contained kind of like sacramental elements of hope. So, for example, the Holy Spirit in Israelite belief came to be associated with water. And you can see this in places in the Bible, like Isaiah 44, verse 3, which reads, I'll pour water on him who's thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So this linking of the Holy Spirit and water, it became more and more prominent. So when they start to think this way, they start thinking, all right, well, okay, when we look back at our history and we celebrate, let's celebrate water coming from the rock. That must be the, the Holy Spirit. Makes sense to me, and it did to them. So, so this trend continues. Uh, in Israelite history, we see you know, Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel 47, if you remember, there's a, a, a visionary experience where there's a guy looking at the temple and there's water that starts to come up from the, from the altar of the temple and it starts to go down the steps. It starts to creep out the temple down and, and the water gets up to the guy's knees and it gets up to his waist, it gets up to his chest, it goes over his head, it turns into a river. 
When it says that in Ezekiel that wherever this river went, whatever it touched came to life. And for you guys who like uh, prophecy and things like that, like I do, in the book of Revelations, it's, you don't, Revelation 22, there's a river flowing from the Lamb and from the throne. There is a river, as Pastor Carl says, it's in the Bible. It says of this, uh, this water that emerges from the temple, along the bank of this river, on, on this side and on that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be food and their leaves for medicine. So again, still talking about water, moving along in Israelite thought, the prophet Zechariah, when he's speaking about the coming day of the Messiah, he says this, he says, in that day, there should be living waters that come out of Jerusalem. So water is a big deal. I kind of labored that a little bit, but uh, they keep putting these elements of the feast and it's going to be important, I promise. But uh, this is... uh, this is something that I, that I heard was I was doing research about the Feast of Tabernacles because I don't think I can really convey the kind of like celebration this is. We just don't do this anymore. Like, I wonder if the Leafs won the Stanley Cup. Like, what would happen in Toronto? Like, maybe it's that kind of thing. But So this is what somebody says. He says, one reason the water libation ritual was so popular in Second Temple days was the accompanying ceremony of the water drawing which took place at night when water was drawn from the pool of Siloam for the next morning's water libation. This is the cool part. In the middle of this ceremony, every night for seven consecutive days, a priest would walk down a ramp that took you down to the pool of Siloam where Jesus healed somebody, get some water out, take it back up to the top of the temple steps, and he'd pour water into, the, into a bowl that drained into the bronze altar, like, the, like Ezekiel's vision. It's like they're trying to, to enact it and make it happen. But it says this, the ceremony of the watering drawing was a jubilant occasion. The Mishnah states, he, the, he has never seen joy who's not seen the water, salve, or water ceremony. They've never seen joy in their life if they've not seen this. The ceremony took place. The Levites played lyres, trumpets, harps, cymbals, and other instruments while other Levites sang. Oh, this is weird, but in the temple area, three golden candlesticks nearly 75 feet high were lit by young boys climbing tall ladders, and the light from these candlesticks could be seen throughout all Jerusalem. Respected men of faith danced and sang in front of these candlesticks while carrying burning torches, and as the ceremony progressed through the night, the priest, the priest blew the shofar three times in the manner of the text of Isaiah 12:3. therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation." The evening was characterized by exuberant joy. It was a wonderful occasion that no one wanted to miss. Some of the rabbis would perform acrobatics and juggle flaming torches as part of the fact. That would be funny. You go to church and your pastor's doing flips. That's funny. Some people interpreted the passage in Deuteronomy 14.26 to mean it was good to spend one's tithe money on food or liquor or whatever delicacies one might desire for the purpose of eating and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. So you put all this together, you got a really big party. Like, I'm probably not doing it justice, but big party. The other cool thing is that those uh, three 75-foot candlesticks, it's actually in John chapter 8. I think it's verse 12. Jesus is at this festival. He's still at this ceremony when he's probably standing beside one of those things, and he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever walks, you know, what follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine Jesus saying that, standing beside these giant candles that are lighting up the whole city? And you've got a man there saying, I'm the light of the world. 
I give light. It's crazy. That's so cool. So anyways, we've got, this is the feast. Jesus has done his necessary precautions. He's read the history. He knows what it's all about. He knows the type of party that he's going to. So uh, step number two, he's actually got to get there. Clearly. Getting to the party. Uh, It should be quite easy, but if you read John chapter 7, verse 1, it's actually a little bit harder than he thought. Jesus is trying to avoid the part of the country where the party is because he knows that there's people trying to kill him. Getting into the party is a little bit difficult. So he's got to look for a little bit of a, of a, a different entrance. Look for a less obvious entra- entrance. So John chapter 7, verse 10, it tells us that after being ridiculed by his brothers, which is uh, an interesting aside, actually, when you think about it, the, the son of David. The son of David gets ridiculed by his brothers when he's about to go fight a victory and, and, and defeat the devil, sin and death forever, just like David got mocked by his brothers when he's about to fight Goliath. So, I mean, that's pretty interesting, but the cool thing about that is uh, Jesus had unbelieving family. Straight up. John chapter 7 says, John chapter his brothers didn't believe. But then the cool thing is later, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, it says that uh, Paul, he's talking about, he says, James, the Lord's brother, and refers to him as an apostle. So Jesus, if you got unbelieving family, you got brothers, sisters, moms, dads, kids who aren't believing, Jesus knows how to take your unbelieving relative and bring them into the faith. And not only that, but bring them into the fullness of destiny like his brother who was ridiculing and mocking him and takes him in and he becomes an apostle. Jesus has been tempted in every way like us. He's gone through absolutely everything. That's just an aside that I thought was really cool. Yeah. So anyways, John, uh, verse 10, it says this, when his brothers had gone up, because his brothers are like, ah, you should come, ha <laughs> who are you? What kind of person does all these amazing things and then hides? <laughs> so Jesus is like, well, I'm not coming up right now. But then he does. Surprise. And you know what? There's actually tons of literature out there written trying to explain why it looks like Jesus might have lied. Or hold on a second, Jesus is God. Did he change his mind? It's, it's funny. But anyways, he says, no, I'm not going. And then he goes. And when his brothers had gone up, then he also went to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. He found the kitchen door, he found the back door, whatever, but he got in there. He avoided these people who were trying to kill him. Watch your timing. You want to arrive when the party's in full swing? John seven fourteen says this, now about the middle of the feast, so probably day three, lunchtime at day three. But the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. He waited till it was in full swing. So, so far, so good. We're clicking off the points. He's doing it all. He probably read the website. <laughs> yeah, he might have he made it. So next one, project confidence. Act like you belong. So listen to this confidence. Listen to what he says. Verse 28 and 29. Then Jesus cried out. So he's in the temple and he taught. But not only did he didn't just walk in the temple and go like to the side chapel and find a few people. No, he walks into the temple and he cries out as he's in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. I've not come of myself, but him who sent me is true. Him you don't know, but I do. I know him for I am from him and he sent me. That's confidence. He knows he belongs. He says, I know him. I know him. I know him, but you don't. 
So what kind of confidence gets released into your life when you know him? Like, listen to Paul. He says, I suffer some stuff. I go through some things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed because I know him in whom I've believed, and I'm confident that he'll keep that which I've committed to his trust against that day. Daniel said, those who know their God, they'll display display strength, they'll take action. Jesus knew God, and knowing God produced the confidence that he could go out, he could meet people where they are. He could have this party confidence because he knew God, and he knew God's love and acceptance. Jesus said, for I'm from him. He had confidence in who he was. You know, he wasn't at this party trying to impress people. He wasn't trying to get approval or validation. He wasn't kind of pandering to the cool kids at the party. He knew who he was, and he knew his God, and he knew where the real party was at. He knew he was bringing it, and he knew he was sent by God. And, and the idea of being sent by God is a, is a fascinating idea when you think about uh, a party. He was sent by God, and I think it works on two different ways. Do you know the confidence that you have in your life when you've been settled, when you've been put in a situation by God? Something specific. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's you know, your, your family. Maybe it's something like that. But you know God's put you in this situation. God has established this relationship for you. That gives you confidence. What do you know you're sent? We've all been sent in a general sense, too. You know, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. There's a general go on every single one of us who, who know Jesus. Go into the world. You know, we, do, we don't have to go into the things that we're doing. We don't have to go to parties. We don't have to walk through life and, and live with fear and trepidation as if we're under siege from, from, from a big bad devil and, and a world that's just looking to swallow us up. You know, that's not the kind of thing that we need to be afraid of. No, when you know that you're sent by God, you know who he is and you know who you are. Like Jesus, you go into places and you display strength. You don't separate and withdraw from life and where the people are. You go to them. You know you've been sent to them. And you got a confidence and you know, I don't want the world cooties. No, you go and you bring heaven's cooties, you know? (laughs) So he had confidence. He acted like he belonged. And think, listen to some of the things that the people said about him. They marveled at him. They said, how does this man know letters having never studied? Who is this guy? Some of them said, is this the prophet? Is this the Christ? Like, he, he's confident. He's, he's saying these things about himself to such a degree that people are like, wow, this guy might be God. Like, that's crazy. I, I don't know. I haven't seen anybody like that lately. He speaks boldly. He doesn't hold anything back. But this is where it gets a little bit weird for Jesus. He's displaying confidence. He knows who he is. He knows he's been sent by God. But step three, blend in. That's a problem if no one else has got that confidence and you're the guy and you're like, yeah, I know. I know God loves me. It's all good. And everyone else is like, who, who is that, that guy at the party? He's so healthy. He's so whole. He looks so like together and with it. He's, oh my goodness, he's smiling. Wow. Jesus, what? Who is this guy? So use good manners. Step number one, make friends. Don't be obnoxious. Go talk. It says go talk to the interesting people, but I think Jesus would have talked to all of us. Don't get caught. If you do, be cool and confess your true identity. So use good manners. I'll leave that up to you, whether you did that or not. I think sometimes manners are subjective. I think by any Victorian standard of party etiquette, maybe not. I mean, Jesus goes to this party, and you can read about it in John chapter 7, but he calls out party goers, and he basically is like, you guys are all lawless hypocrites. 
good manners or not, he accuses people at the party. He says, you're trying to kill me. You're plotting to kill me. Brian, you're trying to kill me. I know it right now. I can see it in your eyes. That's, that's not good manners. Who talks about religion at a party? Who does that? Jesus did. Crazy. Make friends. Make friends. Don't be, don't be obnoxious. I have a hard time believing that Jesus was obnoxious. But again, through, through no fault of his own, we know Jesus never sinned. He was perfect love. He is perfect love. Not because of any flaw on his part. But Jesus had a, he had a polarizing impact on people's lives. As loving and as kind as he is. So in verse 12, you see people talking about him at the party. It says, there was much complaining amongst the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he's a deceiver. He deceives people. In verse 30, it says they sought to take him. In other words, there's people at the party who, you got this guy, he's he's so full of love, he's meeting people, he's mingling, he's being kind, and they want to kill him. And in verse 43, we're told there was division among the people because of him. So I was thinking, why do you think... There's so much division and polarization. Why, why did Jesus have this impact on people? And I want to suggest that Jesus, though he had a polarizing impact, he wasn't necessarily a polarizing person. I think sometimes you can look in the Bible and you can see how people responded to Jesus and be like, okay, if I want to be like Jesus, I need to go around and kind of kick up the same kind of response that he did. You know that kind of, people are hating me, persecuting me, I'm not doing the right thing. So I I don't think that's entirely what it was, but I I think he was polarizing in the sense that he didn't get in people's faces, he didn't demand responses, he didn't say things to people and be like, hey, you you accept what I'm saying right now or we're done, you know? It's now or never, yay or nay, follow me or burn. If you don't like what I'm doing, then uh, you're dead to me, we're done. And And there's so much, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the world right now that does that, take my spot, take my position. Love what I'm saying, or, or we're toast. You put that on Facebook, oh my goodness, we're done. I don't ever want to be your friend anymore. You know, those kind of things. But imagine if that was Jesus' response to his brothers who didn't believe in him. Imagine what would have happened to, uh, to James. Some of these people that were at the party who were like, hey, let's get him, let's kill him. I like to think, I can't prove it, but I like to think just knowing God the way that I do, that some of those people were the ones who, uh, the day of Pentecost, were cut to the heart. And they were embraced into the kingdom that day. You know, I think there was something so unique, so whole, so full, so vibrant about Jesus, about who he was as a person, that when, when people saw him, they saw an expression of life that was unique and powerful, alive. It was, it was so different than anything that he'd ever seen. So full, so, so, oh my goodness, you're alive, you're fully present, and you're whole. I've not seen that before. And when you see something you've never seen before, you've got different options. What what do I make of this? I've never seen it before. It doesn't blend in. You've now altered the course of my life because I need to evaluate what just happened. I can ignore it, can pretend it doesn't exist, or, or I can be like, oh my goodness, that's life, and I want it. You know, as God, Jesus really could have said, now or never, turn or burn right now, but he didn't. So we, we know the verse that says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness, the verse says, and the patience of God that leads us to repentance. Jesus let people make their own decisions in their own time. 
He presented the life of God. He presented the word of God. He lived. He, he demonstrated something altogether unique. He, he opened people's eyes and gave them a glimpse to what life as a human being made in the image of God really could be. And he gave them time. So remember the story about the, the rich young ruler. You know, this, again, speculation. Can't prove it, but I like to think this is how it works out. Jesus says, guess what? He says, what, what can I do to get eternal life? Or He's like, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and he's like, no. Nope, not doing that. Turns and walks away. Jesus is sad. Well, fast forward to the book of Acts, chapter 5, I think it is, where you got all the followers of Jesus who are bringing, they're selling all their stuff. They're bringing it to the feet of the apostles, and the apostles are distributing it. Again, me making stuff up, maybe, but I like to think that maybe he was there. He could have been one of those people. He could have been the guy who started it. He could have said, yeah, wow, I remember one time Jesus said to me, do this, and now I know that I'm full. I know that I'm saved. Let's do this. Let's start this movement. Maybe he was that guy. I mean, it doesn't say he was, but it doesn't say he wasn't, right? Why not? We don't know. We really don't know. But what we do know is that this. Jesus loves everybody. Everybody wanted to be around him, except for the people who wanted to kill him. And I think it was because they didn't know what to do. You're really messing with my program. You're manifesting life, and I'm so committed to living my life in this particular way. I'm so committed that this is the religious way I need to follow in order to get life. That now you're just touching my buttons deep down. You're making me angry. You're touching me where I don't want to be touched. You're just literally upsetting the apple cart, as Pastor Cheryl said a while ago. You're throwing out the basics, the basis, the foundation of all my religious life. And that makes people angry. But he still gave them a choice. Fantastic. And, and we see the parties that Jesus went to. He kept going to these people's houses. You know, he's like, woe to you. Woe to you, religious people. Woe to you people who are making it harder for people to get into the kingdom. But then he's still hanging out with them. He's giving them time. He's giving them space. So Jesus, he's not pushy. He's not obnoxious. He had a polarizing impact at the party. But again, I think it's the beauty of his holiness, the wholeness of the life that he exuded. And people, again, without being pressured, we're forced to make decisions. Now, the tricky thing here, he's so unique. He's standing out. He's so confident. There's something so different about him. He got caught. <laughs> you know what I mean? Straight up, he got caught. But it's okay. WikiHow says, if you do get caught, we got instructions for this. If you don't blend in, for some reason, Jesus didn't. If you don't, be cool and confess your true identity. And so he does. It's fantastic. I'm a bit of a nerd, so just be patient with me. But I love to go through the Bible. I love to see how everything kind of connects. I love the dots. I love how it all points to Jesus and testifies to him. So we're going to do that. Hopefully you're going to make sense and redeem the time that we went over that water stuff. But here we get to really appreciate Jesus, the complexity of who he is and all of his simplicity. He's a beautiful person. So remember the water pouring ceremony in the context of Jesus saying, this is who I am, about how water was linked to the Holy Spirit. It became a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The life of God, the glory of God, the Spirit of God coming out of the rock that followed the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. Remember back to the promise in Isaiah 44 when he says, I'll pour water on him who's thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. 
They remember the water flowing, coming up, emerging out of Ezekiel's temple. It's growing, it's flooding, it's filling the earth, it's bringing life to everything that it's touching. And remember the promise in Zechariah, who says in the days of the Messiah, water's going to come from the city of God and water the earth. Remember all this. Think about all this. When you see Jesus on that day in John chapter 7, 38, he says, on the, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When he stands up on that last day, the great day of the feast, and he says, let anyone who's thirsty come. What he's in effect saying is, I'm the God who's tabernacling with you at the Feast of Tabernacles. John 1.14 says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt actually is tabernacles amongst us. Jesus was in effect saying that I'm the rock that followed the Israelites. And Paul said so as well. 1 Corinthians 10.4, he says of Jesus, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank of that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He was saying that he was the glory of God that filled the temple. The glory left in Ezekiel's days, but returned when Jesus walked in. He was saying that he is the temple of God, and Paul tells us that too, Colossians 2.19, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we're being built together, it says in Ephesians 2.21-22, into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Four times in those two verses, it says, in him, in him. We're the temple of God because we're in him, the temple. He was saying that he's the dispenser of that living water, the source from which it flows. He's the dispenser of the Holy Spirit, if I use that word. He's the Messiah in whose days that living water would flow from the city of God. So look again at Revelation 22 that I said, and see there is a river, clear as crystal, flowing, proceeding from the Lamb and from the throne. Jesus is saying, he got busted, and he's saying, my true identity, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that gives the living water. I'm the originator and the source of life. I'm the messianic hope of the Spirit being poured out all your hungers being met and your thirst being quenched. It's a big statement. If you don't blend in, you get caught, confess who you are, he does it. Step number four, return the favor, throw your own party, and invite everyone you met while party crashing. So does Jesus offer to throw his own party? Look at this. He says, come to me and drink, and whoever believes out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he said this about the Spirit, whom those believing him would receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It says Jesus was talking about the Spirit they would receive at a later date. RSVP, you're being invited to a party, a soon-to-be party. Now remember when he, he said to his brothers, you guys go up to the feast. I'm not going to go yet. And all these people have trouble. Oh my goodness, did Jesus lie? Is he being sneaky? Is he being tricky? Should we call him to question his ethics and his morality? What if he wasn't lying? What if he was just so excited? What if he knew that there are people there who were going to be celebrating something that he actually embodied and he was living in the midst of all of them and he just couldn't wait? He's just so excited. I need to tell you who I am. That, that big light. That water, that's all me, and you can have that on the inside of you. We don't have to do this, this big show. Get some life inside of you. So, there's going to be a party. You're going to be filled. Did he ever throw that party? You might ask, and I'd say, yeah. Yeah, he did. 
Look what Peter says happened after Jesus was glorified. Remember, these things can't happen until he's glorified. But he is. Peter says to the people who I like to think have come back to Jesus, who are saying, oh my goodness, what do we do? He says, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. And what was it that they saw and heard? Well, remember in Acts chapter 2, there came a sound from heaven, a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. House party, I like to think. And then there appeared on them divided tongues as a fire, and they all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And then some people mocked them and said, you're full of new wine. You're drunk. And Peter's got to get up and tell them, actually, no, not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock, which, I mean, yeah. Some people do drink that early. I've seen it down by the university. It's crazy. But anyway, so why do you think they thought they were drunk? Was it because they were speaking in tongues? Well, I've been to some parties. I've done a little bit of life. And I can guarantee you from my experience, I've never seen as a consequence of drunkenness anybody glorifying God in intelligible foreign languages. So I don't think it was the speaking in tongues that people thought. Otherwise, we'd be like, hey, let's get saved and I'll go out which we don't do. <laughs> Thank goodness. I think it looked like they were having a party. They looked like they had a good party. They looked like they'd had a house party. It spilled over the next morning into the streets. There's happy people. They're laughing. Like, wow, you guys are having a great time. He did throw his own party. He really did. Like, he read the website. I think he ticked off all the boxes. When he didn't blend in, he, uh, he certainly threw his own and the fascinating thing to me, the cool thing, the, the awesome thing about God is he still offers it to all of us. He's still having a party. He's still having a good time. And that Holy Spirit, that living water that can quench your deepest thirst, the Spirit of God that when he touches you can bring all things to life, can bring life to whatever it touches, that river. It flows today. We've experienced it. We can all experience it flowing in our hearts. And the exciting thing is out of our hearts to bless other people. It's fantastic. Let's all stand. Like I said, Jesus, he continues to throw his party. And the invitation, come to me and drink, all you who are thirsty. That's still, that's still for all of us today. And it's not... I hope that what you've not taken away from today is that what I'm trying to say is now Jesus repurposes parties into getting together and talking about spiritual stuff. Because that's crazy. He's given us all things freely to enjoy. Go enjoy life. But know this. Know that when you have the Spirit of God, when you've come to Jesus and he satisfies you deeply, you can go do these things. And you're not partying now to get something. You're partying because you're full. You're not partying going from one thing to the next to the next, trying to get life. You've got life. You're full. It's a totally different way of life. It's a life of celebration. It's a life of joy and peace. It's a life of knowing who you are. It's a life of projecting confidence. And that's available and on offer to every single one of us here today. So I'd invite you guys, if everybody, if you have your eyes closed, heads bowed just for a second. There's anybody here who says, I want to know Jesus. I want that living water. I want to be full. 
I want to know what it's like to live life as a party because the Lord has touched me and he's made me whole. That living water has brought life to me. I want my thirst to be quenched. If that's you here today, just invite you at the count of three just to put up your hand for a second, nice and high so that we could all see it. Well, so I could see it. Everybody's got their eyes closed, I promise. If that's you today, at the count of three, please raise your hand. One, two, three. All right, I don't think I see anybody. That's fantastic. Everybody's full of the Holy Spirit and ready to go. Ready to let that living water come out of us and bring those people here who need it. Everybody else, if, uh, if the altar ministry people could come forward. And again, I'd invite you guys today, if anybody feels they need a touch from God, they want something refreshed, revived in their life, there's miracles, there's healing, there's good things that happen at the altar all the time. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for for Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that you love us. You're a good time. Thank you, Lord, that you give us life that satisfies. You, You touch us deeply. You fill our hearts. Lord, I pray that everybody would know that, would feel what it's like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have every need met, to be filled deeply with that Holy Spirit who gives life and brings life to all that he touches. Lord, I pray that you would just burst out of us. Let that living water flow through all of us that, that touches people, that brings people, that brings people to Jesus and brings life in a city that needs you desperately. Father, thank you for all these people. Father, I pray that you bless us all. Help us to have a great day. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for being present to us today. Lord, we worship you. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.